For the first time in decades, Delaware is moving away from the tough-on-crime policies that plague the criminal justice system and moving towards reform. Our state has had many challenges, from grappling with the death penalty to re-entry struggles. But through the institutional damage and mistrust of the system, policymakers, advocates, judges, prosecutors, and defense attorneys are working to rebuild the justice system. This year, legislators from both chambers, led by House Majority Leader Valerie Longhurst, along with the Attorney General, Office of Defense Services, and nonprofit leaders, came together to introduce a package of 19 bills that intend to overhaul criminal justice in the first state. We talked to three key leaders in that overhaul. Delaware Attorney General Kathy Jennings has embraced justice reform starting her term in 2019 by making unprecedented changes to the way the laws are prosecuted. Sean Lynn, a defense attorney and state representative for Dover's 31st District, has led major criminal justice policy for Delaware as chair of the House Judiciary Committee. And Debard McGriff, a community organizer for the ACLU of Delaware's Campaign for Smart Justice. They sat and talked about all elements of criminal justice. Here's their conversation. From the Delaware House Democratic Caucus, this is Whip Count. Hello, everyone. My name is Kathy Jennings, and I have been Delaware's Attorney General now for seven months. How you doing, everyone? My name is Dubard McGriff. I've been working with the ACLU's Campaign for Smart Justice for almost a year and a half. Wow. Doing criminal justice reform. Hey everyone, this is Sean, Sean Lynn. I'm state rep here in Dover. Um, I've been the state rep here in Dover for five years now. I've been fortunate in my career to have prosecuted cases in the attorney general's office right out of law school, uh, cases that involved domestic violence, sexual assaults, and murders. And I've also been very fortunate to have spent over a decade in private practice where I defended people accused of crime and uh, helped people achieve justice in a far different way, including uh, achieving pardons and commutations for people who deserve to come out of the prison system. And so those experiences have really informed a much broader vision of justice than had I remained in the office of the attorney general throughout my career. And so I think with each step in my career, it's helped me grow. And I have a, another experience that I'd like to mention, and that is working at the Achievement Center, which is a reentry center in the northeast section of Wilmington, where uh, mostly men coming out of prison have an opportunity to uh, get jobs and to get help along the way. Really, my experience meeting them and having several of them become my friends and colleagues has been transformative because I know firsthand from talking with them the struggles that they've gone through in their lives and the strength that they have in trying to change their lives for the better. All of that has helped me inform my view of the justice system. I think firsthand I've been impacted by the criminal justice system. When I was 16 years old, I was sentenced to four years in prison. I was in Wycop, and right then and there I knew that, I knew I didn't have a voice. I didn't really know what was going on. I was a 16 year old kid. It felt like I was forced. 
I was just absolutely confused. And um, I live with that experience a lot. And coming home, I don't feel as though I was rehabilitated, but I did have the pleasure of meeting some good people that's been in my corner that really motivated me to live up to my full potential. Uh, like A.G. Jennings said, I started off at the Achievement Center as a peer specialist, you know, working with guys that came home. And I noticed everything that I went through, everyone else went through. It wasn't just me. So I knew that it was the system that had something that was broken. So that started my journey with criminal justice reform. So my story sounds kind of similar to everybody else's. I came in, and this is Sean, by the way. Um, so I started off as a teacher. So I grew up here in Dover, and then I was a teacher in the Bronx, New York, uh, for four years at a public school, and which was probably kind of one of the most eye-opening experiences of my life. Kind of having grown up here in Dover, I really did not have any understanding of real poverty. Um, or its effect on children and young adults. And it was those um, four years teaching in the Bronx in an inner city school that really kind of uh, changed everything for me um, and was one of the reasons why I went on to become um, an attorney. My first um, kind of experience with the criminal justice system was I was a clerk in the Supreme Court uh, for the state of New York in the Bronx and I wrote post-conviction relief decisions for a judge um, during law school. And then I went on to clerk for a um, New York law firm where I did criminal defense work in the second district of New York in federal court. And those experiences kind of cemented the, the lessons that I learned as a teacher, which are that unfortunately, um, too often the kind of color of your skin or how much money you have determines is kind of outcome determinative of your experience with the criminal justice system. Um, and the reality of it is, from my experience, that it's those events early on um, in people's lives that kind of, um, for better or for worse, dictate what kind of experience they're gonna have later on. So if, if mom is gone and dad's in jail and you're being raised by your grandparents, um, or there's really no consistent family and you're in foster care for uh, the balance of your childhood, um, you know, the probability and possibility of having contact with the criminal justice system is just extraordinarily high. Uh, my first experience here in Delaware um, after admission to the Delaware bar is I had a criminal conflict contract uh, for a couple of years with the Delaware S Superior Court um, and at the same time, I did the what's called the indigent parent contract with the family court. So I was kind of simultaneously um, representing parents whose children were taken away by the state, um, who were often kind of second time foster care kids. You know, parent, it's kind of a cyclical matter. You know, you're in foster care, you grow up, then your kids are in foster care. And at the same time, doing criminal defense work. And it just, for me, it really brought home all of those lessons. It was kind of like a, you know, like a fire, like a conflagration of, of different issues where it's, again, too often and, and, just, and it just makes me angry that the color of your skin or how much money you have really affects what kind of justice you get. Um, I think that's so true, Sean. And, and Dubard, thank you so much for sharing your story. I, 
I have a very similar experience with the justice system, and there's a case in particular I'd like to talk about. There's a young man named Lawrence Johnson who was uh, born and raised in New York, and his older cousins brought him down to Delaware. The intent of the older cousins, who were adults, was to rob a gun store. Lawrence was told he was to be the lookout. Lawrence had no record other than a truancy charge in New York. He came down to Delaware with his older cousins, and he stayed outside of the gun store. Um, Unfortunately, one of those who went inside killed the owner of that gun store. Lawrence was charged with murder. He was charged with intentional murder and felony murder as an accomplice. He was charged with every gun that was taken out of the gun store. By the way, he was arrested within an hour uh, by the state police. And he was tried as an adult. He was 16 years old when he committed these offenses. And he was tried as an adult. He was convicted of all of those charges and was sentenced to multiple life sentences as a result. I met Lawrence when his appeals had been exhausted and he was filing post-conviction motions in the Superior Court. We didn't win the first motion, which was really disappointing because I saw great promise in Lawrence. And I got to know him pretty well over the years. I remember going to see him in prison. He had no money for counsel. And I think he felt pretty hopeless. I'll never forget, we had a glass partition separating us down at Vaughn. I put my hand up on one side of the glass, and he put his hand up on the other side. And I said, I will not forget you. Years later, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that juveniles could not be sentenced to life sentences without an individualized hearing. And I think it was Senator Townsend, Brian Townsend's first bill in our legislature was the Juvenile Life Without Parole Reform Bill. Brian and I worked on that. By then, I was back in the attorney general's office, and we worked on that bill. And we gave the ability to people like Lawrence to file a motion and to find his way out. Lawrence may have been the first person to file that motion. The state did not oppose it, and he is today a free man. And I think those are the kinds of things that keep us all around the table going, and that is the Lawrence Johnsons of the world who never, ever, as a 16-year-old boy, should have been given a life sentence. He didn't pull a trigger. He didn't—he wasn't the one yet. That was the kind of justice that was meted out or injustice to him in in those days, and it took a long, long time. He ended up spending more than half his life inside the prison walls of Vaughn. And you know, like uh, you said, you know, you put your hands to the glass and you told him that you'll be there. That means so much. I remember coming home from prison, you know, I was 16 when I was incarcerated. I came home when I was about to turn 21, I really, I, f- I felt like I have it. I, didn't, I wasn't really rehabilitated. I, I say that I wasn't a bad person. I just didn't come on with any skills to move up to the next level. And living in the community I was from, I started doing the same things. I was introduced to um, the PAR concept from Dr. Yasser Payne and UD. 
and everything I've been thinking forever, he put it into a course. It was structural violence, structural oppression, systematic oppression, however you want to say it. And I'm like, that is the thing. That's it. That's what's going on. I think that's what gave me the hope of, you know, knowing that it's not me in particular. You know, I might have done something in my lifetime, but it's a whole system that's set up that set up for me to do those things. And hearing that gave me a lot of hope and gave me a fight to fight this fight. It gave me, you know, the strength to fight this fight. I mean, that's what you talked about at Judiciary last week, which is your whole life. People just said, you're the worst of the worst, on and on and on, and you believed it. I honestly did, I believed it. You know, it's called the Young Criminal Offenders Program, YCOP. And they constantly told you in the program, you're the worst, you know? That was a part of the treatment. You know, it was, a, um, it was cognitive behavior. It was sort of modeled after the old key. So it was real confrontational. And I believed it. I honestly believed that I was the worst. I ended up leaving YCOP and going to general population where it was guys that was older than me and they heard about it and they sort of, I'm not going to say they glorified it. They accepted me into that world and embraced. And I felt apart and it made me feel like I was that until I told you I ran into, um, I happened to get into the PAR program and I'm like, this is the thing right here, you know? So if you tell a child, I think at a young age that you're horrible, you'll never be fixed. It's just something, you, you're, you're just counted out. They're going to do things to, you know, they're going to, they're going to believe it. They're going to believe it inside themselves, yes. and that's really bad. It's 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 terrible, and it's terrible that the system would reinforce that. So, Dubar, talking about why cop, you know it from the inside. What do you think should happen? Well, I honestly believe that when you say that kids are unamenable, they will become unamenable. When you say you are the worst of the worst, they will become that. So, by authority figures and statue and law saying those things, you're going to create what you so-called monsters. You know, you're going to create that. That's what the state is creating. They're not saying you're a good kid that did something wrong. Look at what you did, let's fix it. How can we, you know, how can you become a better person? How can we equip you with the skill set to make you successful, you know, in your reentry? It was just, you were this, we're throwing you on probation, and we're expecting you to come back. I mean, for the problem is, is that for every one of you, Dubard, for every person that's been able to kind of find their way out of it, there are just thousands who who aren't ever going to kind of have that epiphany that you had and are able sure. to kind of like pull yourself out, um, which just makes me angry, honestly. So true. And that's where the fight coming at, I think. That's where this whole criminal justice reform thing comes in at, because... I'm sitting here at this table because of, I had people in my corner, you know? I didn't get it right at first. I had people in my corner that believed in me and supported me the whole time and walked me through the process and it worked. It really actually worked. So if we can do this for all the individuals or even a percentage of them, I would say all of them, like what could change? I'm old enough that when I started in the in the office, in the attorney general's office out of law school, um, the judges had all of the power. 
prosecutors always had a role and a significant role in the system. But judges were the ones who figured out what's the right thing to do at the time of sentencing. And there's no way I'm going to say let's go back to the good old days because they were not good old days by any stretch of the imagination. But between then and now, we have seen decades and decades of minimum mandatory sentences that up until a couple of days ago had to be stacked on top of one another under the law. And that had the net effect of shifting power from judges to prosecutors. It was never meant to be that way. I wrote an an op-ed in the news journal in the year 2000 that said, trust judges to be just. We were not meant as prosecutors to have the power over the entire system that we have to, to in effect, become the judge and the jury. And so now that we're seeing some really good bills <laughs> go through the legislature, and, and thank you, Representative Lynn, for what you're doing, and Dubard for your advocacy, and so many others in our, in our legislature, this is just the time when we can start to right those wrongs. I mean, the damage is incalculable. I mean, and it's not just manifested itself in the criminal justice system and the kind of be hard on crime kind of mentality that so percolated and dominated like the 80s and 90s. But it also was the war on drugs and the just carnage that that left in minority families um, for, you know, generations. You know, I moved to New York City from Dover when I was 17 um, in 1993. And it was kind of the height of the crack epidemic, epidemic in Manhattan and the outer boroughs. And then when I was a teacher, when I was I started teaching when I was 21, um, and the the you know just the human wreckage that the war on drugs left on the on my um, kids' families were just ridiculous. I mean, uh, I don't think that there was an intact family amongst any of the 40 kids that I had. Um, in any of my classes in four years as a teacher. Um, you know, at least, you know, one out of every two kids, I mean, this is just anecdotally, but at least one out of every two kids that I had had a parent that was incarcerated um, or had some contact with foster care or child protective agencies. Um, I can remember this one time um, I had a kid and he just stopped showing up to school. Um, so the school that I taught at was in the projects called Parkchester. So I kind of walk over to his house after school. I take the elevator up. I knock on the door. There's hesitation. I can hear people on the other side of the door, but no one comes to the door. Um, and finally, uh, the kid, his name was Reese, opens the door, and there he is with all of his younger brothers and sisters, some of whom in diapers, and the only furniture in the house is like a mattress on the floor and a TV, and there's no adults home. And this, guy, this kid is in like sixth grade. Um, you know, mom, mom was out, dad is in jail. You know, they kind of live with grandparents, but it's, you know, the war on drugs has just left generations of minorities, you know, saddled with poverty that, you know, is mind-boggling um, and just planted seeds for multiple problems in multiple generations. So our efforts have to be not only focused on kind of reforming the criminal justice system, but addressing what I think is one of the biggest root causes, which is poverty and education. Um, 
we've just done an utter, the administration and us as the General Assembly and Candor has just done a, an absolutely horrible job addressing um, education in the city of Wilmington. Um, it's a disaster. Um, it's an unmitigated disaster. You know, really the only hope is that Vice Chancellor Laster is going to be able to fix it all. Um, so. That is the hope. And, and Representative Lynn, to follow up on what you said about the war on drugs, we know from studies nationally, the Brookings Institute to begin with, that drug usage among black people, white people, is roughly equal. Drug dealing is roughly equal. But when we in the Department of Justice asked for statistics on arrest rates, we learned that for felony-level drug offenses in Delaware, approximately 70% of the arrests are of black people. If you look at misdemeanor arrests, that flips, and the majority of misdemeanor arrests are of white people. That formed the foundation of the drug bill that was recently <laughs> gone through the uh, Senate and now the House. And we're so grateful to you again, uh, Sean, for your efforts in that regard. But you look at the law itself, and the law is racially discriminatory because it disproportionately impacts people poor people mostly, who live in the city, poor black people. And so anything and everything we can do to right those wrongs needs to be done. We've gotten a good start, thanks to our legislature, thanks to the interest of all the advocates. But that's just one small example of a law that has had a pernicious effect. That's a really sad. No, go ahead, man. I can really say from my perspective, I was born in 1984 at... I would say the beginning of, I don't know, I would think it was the beginning of, you know, the crack epidemic and raised through the war on drugs and everything you guys said, I could remember it vividly. I re could remember my community growing up. You know, I remember we had strong black men in our community that would throw community days and buy kids things for school if they needed it. And then it vanished, it stopped. And it was devastation, you know? A lot of people didn't have fathers anymore. It just affected whole generations. And um, a lot of people that didn't have fathers that were incarcerated from the war on drugs, eventually they end up going, cycling into the system and being incarcerated. So it affected generations, and it's still affecting generations. Even the kids of those kids are still becoming incarcerated now in the city of Wilmington. So it created I think it devastated, dehumanized the African-American community, especially here in Wilmington, Delaware. It's going on like right now. Um, I can honestly say mass incarceration, the war on drugs was bad. It was bad. It devastated families. It did enormous, enormous hurt to the African-American community. And I think that's what it hurts me so much thinking about it, you know? But I got faith that we can truly get it right working together with these laws that are right here in the legislature and getting them past the finish line. I think that there is some light at the end of the tunnel. We know the problem. We know what was done wrong. 
Now it's time to take accountability and let's fix it. Let's fix it. We know what's going on. We have to fix it. For the first time ever, we actually have a Department of Justice that is supportive of these Thank efforts. Thank you, AG. Yeah, so, I mean, this this is a you know a a vast departure from what my experience has been in the legislature over the last five years. You know, when we argue things like death penalty or other, you know, even the baby steps, the kind of infancy of some of these bills, it, DOJ was always in opposition to us. Um, in this instance. <coughs> Kathy's become a collaborator. She's definitely, um, definitely a so. champion. Yeah, it's a team effort, always. Yeah. It, it's not one of us, it's all of us. I mean, we've been very fortunate that um, our policy team here at the House has just kind of just gone above and beyond with this, with these, with these bills and, and this package of bills. So, you know, and, and not to, to omit the Office of Defense Services, which I inadvertently did yesterday. So this is a shout out to John Ofredo and Lisa Minatola, um, who have been on board um, from the get-go and have pushed and pushed and pushed to kind of get us to where we are now. But this is just the beginning. Uh, we still have massive... Tip of the iceberg. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I agree. And we have a unique time in history, I think, because... Uh, you, Sean, and the leadership in both the House and Senate are very interested in writing this ship and, and making sure that our system in Delaware is a model of fairness. And so we've got a lot of work ahead of us. For my whole life, you know, growing up, the way I grew up, you know, the poverty-stricken neighborhood, inner city of Wilmington, during the war on drugs, it was like... That's the system. You do not want to be a part of that. Once you get in, you will not come out. You know, you see, you may see someone you know your whole life doing what they do their whole life, just come and get arrested and you'll never see them again in life. So that affects you. That affects you a lot, a lot. So I think it's so when we look at kind of discrimination in the law, we look at kind of two things, like a discriminatory intent and then a discriminatory effect. So on their faces, these bills, and what I mean by the bills passed during the era of war on crime, if you read them on their face, they don't necessarily have a discriminatory intent. You can't kind of suss that out from reading the text of the law. But it's when they kind of get put in place and implemented that you see then the discriminatory effect and the effect on minorities. Um, I mean, kind of the upside, and, and not to be kind of too hard on, on um, you know, those individuals who, who kind of do this job as prosecutors every day. I've been really fortunate with the guys that, and, and women that I deal with in the Kent County side, um, especially from the prosecutors who I thought have always been very fair. Um, the problem is that the discriminatory effect is inherent in the laws and the policing and everything that comes along with it. Um, coupled with kind of the other societal issues that we just need to address on a, on a bigger scope, which again is education, 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 fixing the city of Wilmington schools um, and, and really the other Delaware schools as well. And focus on our children mm -hmm. because our children are the future and we need to wrap our arms around children who are at risk, children who don't have the basic necessities of life and children who have been told you're bad, you're wrong because we need to show them they're not bad, they're not wrong, they're children. And it's my view and I hope 
it it filters throughout our office that until you get out there and you get proximate to what's going on, you have no right to judge anyone. We have to be more empathetic, but that takes a deep and personal understanding of what makes another person tick. I think it's so important that we are in our communities, that we are a part of our communities, and that people believe in us and we believe in them. And that really only happens when you get proximate to what's going on. So I preach that a lot, but I tend to believe that it changed me. Um, I agree. I understand. Understanding is definitely conversations, talking about it, getting it out there, you know, getting the elephant out of the room is always a good thing. You know, a lot of people are scared to touch on a lot of issues, but it's that time. You know, we have a problem here in Delaware. We have one in nine, one in nine people are incarcerated. One in three African-American boys will be incarcerated if we keep on going at this rate. So we have to switch this up. We have to switch it up. And also I would say, along with schools and and educating our younger people, we need economic stability. You know, people need jobs, people need opportunities, skills and things. So they won't have to go back to what they know or defer to illegal things. People have to be equipped with skills to make money, to gain wealth, to get out of that generational poverty gap. Because that's what, in my, in my opinion, that's what systematic oppression is. It puts you in poverty and you are resilient and you do anything when you're back against the wall if your kids need to eat and things like that. So let's get people out of that digging out of the hole, that back against the wall type of mentality and give people the necessities so they can be able to do other things and think about other things besides survival. You know? We also need buy-in from law enforcement as well. I mean, it's far past time for the police in Delaware to come to the table and start being reasonable. I mean, the mere fact that we have another death penalty bill pending um, before the General Assembly, you know, kind of motivated by law enforcement just infuriates me. I mean, I can't tell you how many times during the death penalty debates where um, the police would continue to argue that the death penalty is some kind of deterrent, um, despite overwhelming scientific data that it's not a deterrent. The majority of criminologists believe that the death penalty is not a deterrent, but you know, the, they just can't accept that. Um, they have no evidence that suggests that it is. Um, and moreover, they still kind of continue to ignore the, the um, disparity in its application as it relates to minorities. So Cornell Law School did a study, an empirical study of the application of the Delaware death penalty and concluded that minorities are six times more likely to receive the death penalty in Delaware if their victim was a white person. Um, but yet the new bill doesn't address any of those racial disparities. I mean, and, and frankly, law enforcement has kind of continued to be a problem throughout negotiating all of these bills. And it's really just past time that they come to the table and become part of this effort. So why, in you, in you guys' opinion, why do you think law enforcement traditionally, traditionally come in and are against this criminal justice reform, uh, this criminal justice reform movement, and why do they have so much power in saying, if the science is saying one thing, why do they have so much power in say so saying other word, otherwise if there's no science backing it? 
Let me just say, I, I am against the death penalty, and I have publicly said and will repeat that efforts to bring it back, I will oppose. It has not made us safer, and it certainly hasn't made us a more moral uh, state. I believe that the time has come and gone. It should no longer be the law that um, we can keep people safe in this state in far more fruitful ways than resurrecting a death penalty and executing people. I agree. I, to answer your question, Dubard, I wish I knew. I wish I had the answers. But they replace science and data and you know credible facts with this kind of fear-mongering, um, which is unfortunate. It also kind of points out yet another problem, which is that some of these issues were relying entirely upon the judiciary to solve. So, you know, Leo Stryan ended the death penalty in Delaware. It wasn't, wasn't us um, and the Supreme Court. Um, and, you know, and again, we're going to depend upon the judiciary to save our unit-based funding formula issues and our reassessment issues and really every heavy lift that we need to do that um, either the administration or the General Assembly lacks the fortitude to do, you know, we're just basically ceding that authority to uh, the D Delaware judiciary. Um, the good news is I trust the Delaware judiciary, but frankly, I'm angry that, um, and it's really ridiculous and a poor reflection on us as legislators that we can't do these things ourselves without kind of the adults in the room um, like the Leo's Drines or the Vice Chancellor Lasters to come in and solve these problems for us. I mean, this is our job. Thank you for your transparency, and, yeah, honestly. Yeah. I, I, let me just um, differ a little bit in terms of the police because I have spent a lot of my career in law enforcement. I think their intentions are good. I think their hearts are good. I have seen amazing heroism with community police officers on the county police and city police. I, I think they're afraid that we will be less safe with these laws. But again, I'm just going to reiterate the sky is not falling. It's bright blue. It's getting better every day. And, and I know that if we can keep people safe, if the crime rate keeps going down, which it has been, with these reforms, we're going to start to chip away at the resistance that we're seeing. And again, I, I have seen on the street just amazing work by police officers in communities. And at the heart of what policing is, it should be in the communities. No, you're right. Definitely. Absolutely. That, that is correct. Um, it's just unfortunate that that goodness that we see in the rank and file officer that we don't often see that in the positions that their representatives take here in mm -hmm. the legislature. Which is so true, because mm -hmm. I definitely can um, say, you know, in my experience in Wilmington, the Wilmington police are definitely getting more community-based. But as um, Rep. Lynn said, you know, the representation down here when it comes to real reform, real policy change for the right things, it's always opposition, you know? So, so right now, and I honestly believe that um, people, it's just going through the motions. We don't have too many programs in jail. Like I always reflect back to my personal situation. I don't feel like I was equipped with the tools to come home and be successful. It wasn't anything in there that 
really I can use home to really, you know, get ahead. So I would say uh, we have to create some type of rehabilitation inside. You have to treat some type of skill set learning inside so people will come home with something. Because right now people are just sitting. They're sitting and they say um, idle time is devil time, right? And they ain't got nothing but time in there. When we look at the reasons for incarceration, we break them down really into three. It's punitive, it's coercive, or it's rehabilitative. So coercive is when you're imprisoned, for example, because we want you to do something like pay your child support or pay your alimony. Punitive is, you know, we're in there, you're in prison because, you know, we're punishing you. Rehabilitative is, is we put you in there because we want you to come out better. Um, across the board, the United States has ascribed to a rehabilitative um, version of incarceration, which kind of um, differs significantly from, you know, most, most American laws and specifically that of Delaware derived from the kind of old English law. So when you look at like prisons in like the Charles Dickens era, clearly punitive, um, we've kind of strayed away from that and we really want people to get better. Um, unfortunately, we're not putting the the resources that we need into getting programs that really allow people to get better while they're in prison. It's really just kind of a time waster. Um, not to mention the kind of pitfalls that we've been dealing with with healthcare in the prison system and just any number of problems. But to answer the question, I, I think that it's the purpose behind it is for rehabilitative um, reasons. Now, whether we're falling short on that. Um, is another kind of discussion in and of itself. And we are falling short on the rehabilitative aspect of imprisonment. I also think we have, with minimum mandatories, especially the stacking of those, we have gotten into this justice system, one size fits all, which it frankly doesn't. Every human being is different. Every crime is different. The harm done to victims has to be taken into account, should be taken into account. But I also think that you can't have a cookie cutter system of justice, and that's who we have now. And and the people inside prison, they can be there for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years. What do those years mean? Each year has to have some purpose. And, and I think since 90% of people are coming out at some point, we need to do a whole lot better job. Leaving aside the humanity or the inhumanity of what we're doing now, we just need to do a whole lot better job at helping people become law-abiding, productive, get jobs, be able to feed their families when they do come out. That's where our dollars should go. It should never be about wins and losses. We have an ethical obligation, not just to the victims and the citizens of Delaware. We have an ethical obligation to the accused. And so the prosecutor's mission is by its nature broad. When I started in this job on January 1st, we immediately formed an internal working group to come up with reforms inside the office that would change how we charge how we make sentencing recommendations, how we approach bail, and how we approach pardons and commutations that would have people thinking very differently. That winning is not the goal, doing justice is the goal. And frankly, the internal changes came about because a lot of prosecutors got together and looked inside themselves. It's really hard to do. We're always ready to point a finger 
But it's very hard to look inside yourself and say, what can I do differently? And that's what we ask them to do. And those changes have been substantial already. So I think, I think we can make a lot of headway uh, inside our office with how prosecutors approach I think that's justice. all coming from you. I mean, it's, it's just that you're having like a firm hand. It's unique to have someone like you who actually has kind of been a real lawyer kind of at the head of um, the agency. So I really think it's kind of coming down from you. So, I mean, I've said it before. I said this to you the other day, and I'm proud of you. Um, I didn't see it coming, but Kathy Jennings is the new progressive messiah. She is. She <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't. I didn't see it. But she told man, it's so, here. No, she's definitely walking the walk. You definitely walking so. the walk. I definitely appreciate it. I just have really good people around me. Is you what really, I did. Um, and you at the table. Mm-hmm. We could. No one can do this alone. Yeah, it's yeah. all of us together. And I'm just ecstatic, you know, that you opened up the doors and hired, you know, Corey Priest, who's been impacted in. He's a great guy, and I think he's perfect for the job to, you know, really be a liaison between those two communities, um, you know, DOJ and the community. Like, you couldn't have picked a better person, and I applaud you for that. Well, thanks, Tuvar. (laughs) We're crazy about Corey. (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, it's definitely been a renaissance. You know, I think we have a great legislative body here. Our attorney general is taking charge, and leading these efforts and probably like the first in American history to ever do this type of thing, right? It's serious. And I also could say, you know, we brought up my knowledge and my expertise on this was the ACLU and the Campaign for Smart Justice camp, this Campaign for Smart Justice. We handed out the surveys to the AG candidates and bugged you guys to go do these forums all up and down the state and talk about criminal that. justice reform and all those things like that and out to the legislators. So I think um, the community was well aware of the criminal justice reform movement and they were paying attention to the attorney's general election in the, the last election and I think you know it all worked out <laughs> it's all worked out we have a platform now let's go Whip Count is brought to you by the Delaware House Democratic Caucus. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash dehousedems, on Twitter at dehousedems, and on Instagram also at dehousedems. More episodes are coming, so make sure you're subscribed. 